And so that's really what we're all about. It's not saying you can or can't do something. It's attempting to align people with their natural strengths. So the thing they're doing for work is that thing that they feel like, that comes really easy for me. Welcome to another episode of the Peak Performance Selling Podcast, where we interview top sellers and sales leaders to learn the different tips, tricks, and mental strategies that they use to create sustainable peak performance. Let's get rolling. Today, I'm incredibly excited to bring on Jim Sparadolozzi from the Predictive Index. Currently, he leads the direct sales team, customer success, and partner growth teams at PI. They're focused in a really interesting area that I'm fascinated to learn more about today around talent optimization. Before he joined PI, he built and ran the Velocity sales team at Black Duck Software, an application security company, and Jim has been in software sales for longer than he really wants to admit. But in his spare time, he also has three kids that he gets to raise at home, especially now during COVID, a wonderful cat. And when he's allowed to get out of the house, he loves to hike, snowboard, and pursue his newly found passion for the one wheel, which if nobody has seen the one wheel or heard of it yet, you've got to check this thing out. Luckily for me, living in the mountains, I've actually got to see some of the inaugural one wheel races up uh, near Vail. And so this is a really cool thing to get around town. I think the beach is what it was designed for, too. So we'll definitely have to learn more. And welcome, Jim, onto the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Jim. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to learn from you as somebody that has a lot of years of experience in sales, leading teams, spending a lot of time within tech space. I think that's where so many of our listeners live today. So I'm really curious to start off and just hear a little bit about your sales journey. How did you end up in sales? What got you here? And did you ever think you were going to be in sales maybe when you you first started out uh, going into the job world? I think that sales might be the only profession where where people are commonly have the this is how I fell into my profession story, right? You don't hear you never say ask a doctor, how did you get into this business of doctoring? Uh, but for me, I went to college like many people, and I remember having a roommate whose father was in sales, and uh, he told me he was going to be in sales too. And I remember thinking, well. What are you doing in college then if you're just going to go get into sales? Why don't you just go get into sales? Which may still be true, by the way. But anyway, uh, I got out of school with a liberal arts degree and I didn't find any job adverts for a liberal artist. I was willing to pretty much take anything that would allow me to pay my loans and get an apartment and maybe buy a car. And my current, my wife, my my only wife, my one and only, uh, who I was dating at the time was a recruiter. And she had a job opening in a sales team selling computers over the phone back when you would call someone on the phone to buy things, pre-major pre adoption of the internet. Yeah, and, and I got the job. Turned out I was pretty good at it. And the rest is history. That's awesome. And, and did she at the time say, I think you're going to be really good at this? Or was it, eh, here's the job. Let's see what happens. You, you know, I was like, I can't sell. I'm not going to be a salesperson. I remember that conversation with my, my old college roommate. And I mean, I, I loved him, but I'm not like that person, right? And I wasn't business-minded. I studied sociology, English, and fine arts were my concentrations. So none of them said sales, business. I didn't have a business degree, marketing degree, nothing. Uh, What got me into it was I was a nerd. And I was like, well, computers are cool, right? This was the 90s, right? So computers were there. You know, People were starting to think about the internet and buy Amazon was starting to come out. And so it wasn't like only nerds were into computers, but I was into computers when before it was cool. And I was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about those. So if people are calling me, just asking me questions about computers, I could tell them the answers. And, I, and maybe I could make that happen. What I didn't realize was my job became 
not really that much about computers. In selling hardware, right, you're thinking about what do I have available? What's going on in my warehouse? How fast do this, does this customer need this thing? What other things do they need to enable them to achieve their outcomes, right? Like, well, if you're actually try, you're buying a computer for what reason? Did you know you might need these things too? And you know, I started realizing like, like my job was really helping people solve problems, not selling them computers. I think that is such a powerful transition to say, no, my, I'm here to help people solve problems. I think that's one of the things that I love about sales and find as really a key characteristic for the folks that I've seen perform really well over time is if you're there to actually help people do something better and can take your knowledge, your experience and expertise, now all of a sudden you're able to bring value to the table opposed to maybe feel like you're just there to extract dollars out of somebody else. When that roommate told you their father was in sales, that's what they were going to do. I talked to a lot of people that have a bad connotation of sales, the used car salesman. You look at the word clouds when you ask folks about sales and you see slimy and all these other words. What was your perception of sales uh, at that point in time, if you can remember? Yeah, I remember because I was studying sociology at the time. And in sociology, there's the idea of a stigma, which is what you're talking about. Sales as a profession has a stigma. So do other professions like, you know, people love to hate lawyers, right? Turns out I have a brother who's a lawyer, brother who's a doctor. I'm in sales. So I'm actually the black sheep of the group. Uh, but, you know, everybody loves my doctor brother. He needs amazing. All that aside, there's a stigma associated with sales yeah. that you're right. Like, is it the person at Best Buy trying to get me to buy a warranty? Is that what sales was? Which, by the way, I did have to do when I sold computers. It's part of that gig. But there's absolutely a stigma associated with sales that I think is changing. I think it's changing. You're starting to see colleges teach sales. So I, I guest lecture now at MIT and Harvard, and I've done guest lecturing at, at Bentley. And there's a lot of interest now in college in, in just becoming part of the sales profession in the university world. That wasn't there. I mean, you, you, there was not a way I could have gotten a degree in sales in the 90s. Couldn't have done it. And now you can. Uh, and there's some major programs teaching. And I think that's starting to shift gears. People are realizing what I, what I mentioned helping people make a positive change is how the best salespeople operate. And that gets down to the belief system, right? I think when I got into the profession, you know, I felt like, oh, my, my job, I guess, is to extract value, as you mentioned. And I, and I came to that conclusion. The, the, be, the best sales and maybe the best sales leaders instill a belief system first before they worry about tactics. A lot of folks like to come to me and talk about what's the tactic? What's the, should I use the assumptive close? You shouldn't by the way. But you know, those kinds of things are tactics. And focusing on those things misses the most important mark, which is that your belief system is the most important part of your ability to sell. You, you mentioned Sandler. I'm actually, I've uh, been acquainted with the guru Ganesh, who's one of the top Sandler trainers. You may know he invented something called the success triangles, which I love. And at the top of the success triangle, there's three points on a triangle, right? So the top point, he says, is the most important point, which is your attitude. You know, I think about that in terms of your belief system. And the number one most important thing that you have to have in your belief system to be successful in sales is that your job is to make or help people make a positive change for their business or for their person, depending on whether you're B2C or B2B. And if you don't believe that, you will not succeed over the long term. You may succeed in the short term. You may feel like, oh, look, I pulled off selling ice to an Eskimo, which I probably shouldn't say it that way. But that's an expression people used to use that I hate. You should never be doing that, right? You shouldn't, I don't think you should use that word, but also 
you shouldn't be do, selling people things that they don't need that don't help them make a positive change. Oh man, there is so much in there that I, I will definitely unpack with you. And I'm curious to hear how that aligns with what you guys do with the predictive index as you start thinking about how you understand people's behavior profiles. How does that start playing in as you guys now have so much data and insight to thousands of different humans and their tendencies and how they operate? How do you see that playing out with your sales team? or outside organizations? Predictive Index is actually sold. We do have a small, what we call the direct sales team that you and I talked about before this call. But that's a very small part of how we go to market. We maybe have, I think at this point, six or seven people on that team. They're great people. They're very talented sales professionals. And they believe truly that their job is to help people make a positive impact in the world. We have a uh, mission we're on to make the world better through better work. We call that better work, better world. And you know, our direct sales team, the direct customer success team that I, I work with and I have the pleasure to lead, both believe in, in those concepts that we are here to help people make a positive change in their business because it's actually truly our mission. We want to make the world better by making people's lives, life at work more, more enjoyable, helping them be more engaged in their work. And by having people that are engaged in work, you have happier employees who also go home to their partners, their children, their families, wherever they go home, they go home in a better mood. They go home able to disengage from work and focus on what's mostly important to them in their lives. And that makes a whole, you know, sort of a cascading benefit to the, to the universe. And we're really looking to make that dent in the universe. But what was important here is we have at, at Predictive Index, 90 plus percent of our, of our revenue generated and in the hands of a partner network of business consultants, management consultants. If they don't behave as if they're trying to help that CEO make a positive change in their business, they will not be in business. They have to operate that way. And they use PI, PI's tools, the Predictive Index Talent Optimization Platform, to enable those positive changes. But their first job is to figure out, like a good, great salesperson would, what is the problem that needs fixing? What is the challenge that CEO, that sales leader, that customer success or service leader is trying to, trying to get through? Right? And so they, they have to behave more like, well, well, true business consultants. Or when I'm coaching, especially new to the profession people, how to, how to make that shift. I talked to them about thinking about the world as if they were a therapist, where the job number one is to uncover the person's problem that they're trying to solve before you go and start prescribing whatever it is you might prescribe, if that makes any sense. It's a little bit of a departure, but it really helps with that belief system journey that people are on when they're new to the profession. Such a powerful place to start within our beliefs, because if our beliefs don't align with what we're trying to do, that misalignment, like you said, short term, sure, you can probably power through it. You can push through it. Long term, it's really hard to sustain. And so as you start looking at different profiles of individuals and as you start, maybe you can even talk to us a little bit about yours. I know I saw that you are a captain within your predictive index profile. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means and from there how you operate or become more aware of your own tendencies and habits and beliefs? So the captain profile in the PI model uh, we call it a reference po- profile. It's not this. It's not a super common profile. In fact, if you go back into history, PI is a, a actually a, a 
fairly long in the tooth company. We were founded in 1955. And, and when we first came up with the idea of a reference profile, the captain profile was called the authoritative manager slash sales profile. So it's generally thought of as good for leadership and good for sales. And uh, the reason why is uh, it, its most notable trait is proactivity. So very strong in being proactive, which in a, in a sales world is, is really useful. As you can imagine, I don't think there's a lot of people who would say, oh, no, I want people who aren't proactive in my sales roles, right? So strongest expressed trait, proactivity, also expresses a trait of being really focused on getting tasks completed. We call that task focus, task orientation, but also generally assertive and extroverted, likes to talk, likes to, likes to speak it out. All, all things that, that align well with what people think of often when they're looking for sales. And then, and, and then has this kind of flexible nature, but with a enjoys process kind of, they, they compete with each other, but the captain can be flexible as needed, but prefers to have a process to follow, which uh, in modern selling, I think is, 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 is pretty important, especially when we get into that, what we call the black the velocity sales world, which is often called inside sales. And of course, now that we're in a COVID world, everyone's in that inside sales environment. Talk to me a little bit about myself. I know I, I filled out a, a profile, a reference profile with you guys uh, a while ago or, or took your assessment. And I, I think it looked like I aligned very closely with a collaborator. So how might you approach me or what tendencies might you see with somebody like that? And how might you think about managing somebody like me to get the, the best out of me as an individual uh, or hiring even? Collaborators align with teams. Collaborators are great at helping teams be cohesive. They're great at, at you know pumping everybody up and getting everybody to feel good. So collaborators are really useful in environments where you you really like if you're struggling with a toxic culture, you want to add collaborators because they they help the teams gel. Definitely want to put collaborators in a role where they get the opportunity to have long term affiliations. Uh, I run a customer success team. I love having collaborators in a customer success role because they spend years with the same client and they have the patience to deal with that. They do tend to struggle in what you'd call a transactional sales role. So captains and some of the other profiles really like just getting that job done and moving on. Collaborators prefer to kind of stay with something for a longer period of time. It, you know, So customer success, you could see enterprise sales where the relationship is more important being strong place for the collaborators in the world. For those of you that don't have uh, me on video here, I'm just smiling and grinning pretty far ear to ear uh, as Jim is going through this because this nails so many of the things that I see in myself that I was able to find out on a, a simple assessment that now all of a sudden helps me, my managers, my leaders have a better understanding of me that to Jim's point from earlier, goes beyond just the assumptive closing tactic or whatever it might be that now helps us optimize that human, those individuals, our entire organization, which is what has me so fascinated about the work that they're doing over there. One thing you should always remember is anybody can do any job. The question is what's natural for them versus where they're putting in work. So if you ever find it, you know, first, if you hear me say, oh, you can't do this because I'm wrong, right? you can do anything. You could do a transactional sale. It's just that might be a little more frustrating for you to do that over a longer period of time because it's more work, right? And when you find yourself asking the question of, why is that one thing so hard for me and so easy for Mary or Bob or whoever it is, right? The answer often is because that is something that aligns well with their innate behavioral needs. If you like detail work, 
then accounting might seem easy to you and really hard for me because I don't like detail work. And that doesn't mean I can't do accounting. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively intelligent human being, not, not the smartest <laughs> tool in the shed, but I could open up a spreadsheet and with some education and take a couple classes, I could do accounting work, but I really wouldn't like it. And if I really don't like my job, either I'm going to be frustrated and then come home stressed. I'm going to be disengaged and not really do it to the highest level of caliber. And so that's really what we're all about. It's not saying you can or can't do something. It's attempting to align people with their natural strengths. So the thing they're doing for work is that thing that they feel like, that comes really easy for me. Are you ready to commit and take your performance and fulfillment to the next level? Check out my core OS, where we work with sales leaders and teams to take their performance to the next level by creating championship operating systems and cultures with live Zoom workshops, one-on-one trainings, mindfulness for sales, and more. Check us out at mycoreos.com. That's really fascinating and powerful because we now have tools that can help us do this, where historically it was just the interview process, maybe some references. Now we can actually help hire for that profile for the folks that we can see it's going to be easiest for them to align with this role. You know, my, my role has changed over time to where, yeah, I am doing a bit more of a transactional sale. And you can talk to anybody that I work with. They all know that I don't like that. And yet, you know, you, you had uh, a couple minutes of looking at my uh, reference profile and assessment from PI, and you can hit that out of the park uh, at, within a couple of minutes. So I think there is so much power there uh, as we look at that. And so I'm curious, as you think about your direct sales team profile that you look at and hire for, maybe they're captains. What are some of those pieces that you look for as you look at your guys' profile, reference profiles, or even as you think about the interview process? What I'm, what I'm about to say is probably going to be very controversial with your audience, and they're likely to reject it all, and that's fine. But I, I have a unique perspective on sales hiring that really developed through the use of PI. Perfect. The predictive index. You can use it in different ways, but the way I like to use it is when I think about sales and and what I want to do is I don't want to build a sales team. I want to build a team of leaders and I want to build a leadership development function that could very easily develop talent that could then be used elsewhere in the organization or frankly, elsewhere in, in the world to create that positive impact. I would like for me to be building a positive impact in the world through a leadership development program, not necessarily a sales development program. And some people hate that and they don't want to be a part of that. And, and one thing that I learned at Black Duck was when people hate it and don't want to be a part of it, but you've, you've selected people based on their experience in sales, that the most common outcome is they quit and you're set back, right? So I was um, very proud of what I did at Black Duck and what we did as a team. But as a, as a hiring manager, when I first got there, I failed where two-thirds of the salespeople I hired quit within about a three-month period. I actually had been introduced to behavioral assessments through another provider and actually went to the VP of HR at the time asking if I could use that behavioral assessment to help me hire better. And at the time, she told me, well, that particular assessment, I'm not comfortable with it for pre-hire use and it gets into like HR law and and compliance. But she recommended PI and a a PI partner to help us be compliant. And 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 what I discovered was I was doing it all wrong. I was hiring for experience. And I wasn't looking at behavioral fit to a leadership role, which is what I needed. I needed people who wanted to lead who wanted to make a big impact. You know, I could hire people with BDR experience, 
right? And there's nothing wrong with being a BDR for your whole career. I've worked with some really phenomenal BDRs that have, have, that want to retire as BDRs and they make a lot of money doing it and they're very good. But I was looking for people who were not experienced in sales, but wanted to grow, had a growth mindset and wanted to really develop into some leadership capacity. And, and they didn't care. It wasn't, it wasn't, they didn't care about sales, but they didn't have, they didn't need the experience of sales. And what I found was by being able to hire people with a, with a very clean slate, zero to very minimal sales experience, but with the behavioral alignment to leadership, they would very quickly learn sales. You could teach it. You could teach sales in a three to six month period, in my, in my estimation, if you have a, a good system for teaching it. And if you can teach it, you can scale it. If you just get rid of sales experience as a requirement, you have this huge pool. As long as you can get them trained quickly and move them up in a, into a leadership position, you can rapidly scale a sales organization in a way that is more like having a factory for sales rather than having a guild system for sales. Because the traditional world of selling is, you know, it takes 20 years to become a good salesperson. And I'm here to say it can be done in six months if you know how to do it. But if you bring in that 20-year sales veteran and expect them to change how they sell, you should change your expectations first because they're not going to change how they sell. It's so powerful as you start thinking about how do you mold that person into your optimal seller and future leader. I I love that you keep coming back to this concept of how do we create this positive ripple effect throughout the world with the folks that we build and develop. And I guess I'm curious, as you talk about maybe that six-month ramp-up time to help somebody come into sales with no experience to become a great seller I'm sure part of it is this belief system, making sure that we've got the right profile aligned so the work should be easy for them. What do you then start doing to really help ensure that these folks that you're bringing in are getting up to speed and really starting to unlock you know, the, the most potential or greatness within themselves? My theory is the best way to start learning how to sell is through making cold calls. So the first job I tend to put people in out of school. It's not an easy job. It's possibly the hardest job in sales. But making cold calls is a great way to quickly get a lot of looks at using some some of the belief systems that we talked about, right? If you can't get your attitude right, you cannot make cold calls effectively. But also some of the techniques that I think are going to make you effective over the long term, especially in the area of quickly establishing rapport in an efficient way. One of the most common mistakes that I've seen is that people hire extroverts who are terrible at building rapport efficiently. And what I mean by that is when people agree to take a sales call, they generally don't want to talk about the weather or sports. Salespeople, especially the extroverted ones who haven't been trained in efficiently building rapport, start out every sales call with, how's the weather in your area? Oh, you're in Dallas. How the Cowboys doing? And that may actually build rapport. So it may not be a mistake that that can build rapport. But actually, it's risky. It may not, right? Because what if I'm what if I'm a Giants fan, just happen to live in Dallas, and all of a sudden you're now now you've broken rapport. But the, and I'm not saying I like any team or, or not. But uh, the the point is, it's a risky way to build rapport. But the biggest risk is that it works, and now you spend 15 minutes of your meeting talking about football and not business, and you really can't make a positive change with somebody if you're not talking about the problems on order. So you have to think about efficiently building rapport, not just getting to rapport. And in a cold call, what do you have, 10 seconds to get rapport? You're not going to, you're not going to ask about football or the weather. You know, we, we train on how to use empathy 
to build rapport, how to use humor to build rapport, you know, sort of self-deprecating humor so it's less dangerous. Uh, and, and that's the first thing you need to learn in sales is how to be empathetic and how to make people laugh quickly through at least one or two practice jokes. I love that. I think that's a good little nugget that folks can use because I know there's a lot of times apprehension to to pick up the phone and make that dial. And so any way that you can make it a little bit easier, feel a little bit more confident moving into it, and of course, have the belief system of knowing that nobody's going to buy if you don't pick up the phone. So you've got to, you got to do it. Uh, it is really critical. You mentioned, oh, fire away. I would just say more important than that in the belief system, especially when you're making cold calls, is that you believe that the people you're calling have at least a, a fighting chance to have a really serious business problem that you could help them solve. And your job is to find those people. Uh, it, your job is not to sell to the, to the people who don't have that problem you solve. It's just to find the ones that do. Even better. That, that is super powerful and something that I'm definitely going to make sure I uh, reiterate in the show notes because I think I see a lot of sellers struggle in, in that area. You, you mentioned empathy, and that's something that I'm always curious to hear people's thoughts about as it's a word that's being thrown around a lot lately in general and even more so in sales. Talk to me about, one, how you think about empathy in sales, and two, how do you help build that? with sellers, with your team, with yourself? How does that happen for you? Yeah, especially as I mentioned, quickly, right? Because empathy can come over time uh, as you get to know somebody. But in a cold call or if I'm, if I'm a, a new business sales rep trying to do a transactional sale, I may, have, I may have an hour of time. That's a lot, right? I don't want to use it all building empathy and, and, and ex- expressing empathy. There's a, there's a gentleman named Jack Schaefer who wrote a book called The Like Switch. He's an interesting fellow. He was a former FBI counterintelligence agent. His job was to build rapport with F, uh, you know, Russian agents and flip them to be on our side, which meant not only rapport, but trust. So there's a whole ton of goodness in this book for sellers, uh, that I, I, and I love to recommend it. Uh, one of them that I got out of this book is something called The em- Empathic Statement. It's a way to quickly build rapport through showing empathy. And so in, in his model, one of the first things that you do when you're greeting somebody new and hoping to get rapport is you notice something about them and you state it. And, and it generally works well in his model if you start with the word, so you, or so you seem. And so, and so if you're getting on a Zoom call with someone, you can, you can look and say, oh, so, so it seems like you're having a busy day. So you seem very busy. So you seem stressed. So you seem frustrated. And empathy is about sort of experiencing with someone their emotional state. So it works best when you combine it with a way to control your tone to have a similar or at least a similar emotional state or at least uh, a concern for that, theirs. And this can translate into a cold call because you can kind of have an assumed empathy of what someone is going through when they experience the act of picking up a call and realizing that there's a salesperson on the other end. And you can imagine that if you're calling busy executives or busy business people of any sort, that they're busy. And so you can have an automatic empathy, empathy moment by telling the person that just picked up the phone, so you seem very busy, or so you seem tr- distracted, so you seem frustrated they just picked up a salesperson's call, right? And so if you, if you start your calls with that empathy and combine it with a, a tone that really focuses on concern, then, then you can accomplish that goal of quickly getting to rapport. And that works well even on a one-hour discovery call. If you're a customer success person, and that you're having your QBR quarterly business review with even a repeated contact 
you can use empathy in the same way. It just, it might be different. It works best when it's truthful. It's great over Zoom because you can really observe that, that thing you're being empathetic about. That's great. We'll definitely link to that. The like switch in the show notes is that is so fascinating, especially as people have to start thinking about new ways of building rapport, of expressing empathy. And hearing you talk about empathy as a key to rapport building, I think it is one of those critical aspects as to where we see this as a skill that sellers really need to have to be effective. And when you pair that with the fact that you know you're reaching out to somebody that you should be able to drive some help for and make a positive impact on, it allows you to be authentic through that whole process. That's fascinating. And I really, really appreciate that thought. I want to go back to something that's been rattling around in my head after you talked about working with students at MIT, Harvard, different institutional or educational organizations. What has surprised you about working with some of these young future potential sellers? Anything that has stood out as you look back on your experience working with them? So in, some, in some cases, these are, these are Harvard Business School students or MIT Sloan students. These are, these are MBA candidates. You first come to it like, you know, these people aren't going to want to get into sales. You know, and maybe that's my stigma coming through and my own thing. Like when I was getting my liberal arts degree, I didn't want to get into sales. And, you know, for the most part, it's, it's true that they're not, that their vision for their end state isn't sales. What surprises me is, and I think this is part of the shifting world, right, where these people who are probably going to at least attempt to found a company or become a senior executive at a, at a, at a, at a, a startup or a, uh, a growth stage company, that's often their interest. It, well, I mean, these are the ones taking a sales class, but <laughs> so it, this is perhaps a self-fulfilling situation, but they tend to be enlightened enough to know that they are going to have to know how to sell in order to be effective in so many business roles that don't have sales in the title, whether it's CEO, uh, head of customer service, business development, you know, like the, not the BDR business, but the, the mergers and acquisitions and, and that type of business development. They, they realize that sales is going to be a part of what they do day to day. And if they don't understand it and have how to do it, then they won't be as effective. And it's really cool to see future business leaders thinking about the sales profession as that important. One of the gentlemen that I work with in both of those situations is uh, Lou Shipley, who is the CEO of, of Black Duck. He likes to say, I'm paraphrasing here, so I hope I don't mangle this. He likes to say, you know, the, the, the first thing the board asks you is how's the sales forecast look, you know, when you're the CEO. So that's, the board is paying attention. Like that's what they care about. And I totally mangled the way he says that. He says it in a much more eloquent way. But, you know, all these other things that you think you're studying in, in, in when you're getting your MBA, the, the board that you're working with never cares. They want to know what the sales forecast looks like. So you really got to understand some of that. I think that, again, aligns really nicely with your earlier thought as you think about hiring and building not a sales team, but a team of leaders. Because that was one of the things that started to intrigue me about sales is, Every single business that you're a part of has to find a way to generate revenue to be successful. So that's where I see so many folks growing through the sales ranks to that C-suite, to the CEO position, because that is one of the key elements of a business. And I love that quote from Lou around, you know, first thing the board's going to ask you is about the sales, because that is so critical. A couple rapid fire questions that I, I always love to ask and fire out to folks here. What do you do for yourself, for your team, for your leaders 
to try and bounce back from a tough month or quarter or year? What practices do you use? Maybe what beliefs do you bring to the table to really try and help get things back on track? I hate to always have a book to recommend every time you ask me a question. It's important to... One of my favorite books recommended to me by a former colleague is uh, Jocko Willink's Extreme Ownership. And you know, I think the first thing you should do as a sales leader when you miss a month or don't get a deal is to look at yourself and your leadership and figure out how you can be accountable and how you should be accountable to that result. This is great. And if you don't do that, then it often can be, oh, I'm blaming this sales rep or that sales rep for saying this deal slipped or that deal slipped and that's the only reason I'm making excuses. You don't make excuses. You, won't, you, you don't want to get into a position where you feel like you're as bad as your worst month or as good as your best month. You always want to stay even keeled. And every time you want to think, what could I have done better? And by the way, you should do that when you have a great month, right? Because success can hide failure. Oh, wow, we had a great month. Well, you know, we had a great month because we got that one big deal. We didn't get as many deals as we expected. What did we do wrong? Right? What did I do wrong? What could I have fixed? And so I, I recommend everyone in any business capacity read Jocko's work or listen to his podcast. He has this idea of cannonballs. I think he calls it cannonball. I'm not sure if we came up with this from his thinking or if it was his idea. Uh, but he has this idea when something bad happens, you celebrate it. And you say, good, I'm glad that happened. Now we can figure out how to fix a problem. And so if you have a bad month, look at yourself. What did I do wrong? What could I have done better? Good. Now I can fix that problem. I love you bringing up celebration in there. Is that something that's been exposed to me in the last probably 6 to 12 months around opposed to this negative reinforcement of beating yourself up over the tough month or missing the deal or not coaching somebody as effectively as you you would have liked to, opposed to getting really negative, beating yourself up, it's awesome. I'm glad that I realize this now as something I can help solve. So not only the celebration helps you bring the awareness back in, but it also helps you now see it as the opportunity. And I love hearing how you position that, especially on the great months. You know, it's so easy to dig into the failures, the successes, the things that don't go as well as you'd like them to. But to actually pull that back into, yeah, how do I even look at the opportunities out of the great months that I have is where I think part of the reason why you recommend books, because I think leaders are learners and somebody that's out there consistently looking to learn, to grow, to develop is going to ultimately be successful in the long run. Yeah, Mike Zani, our CEO at the Predictive Index, uh, has this great quote, and by the way, I, I don't I don't know where this quote comes from, but he's a he's a, uh, a avid sailor. He, he likes boats. He won't. He's not shy about it, and he's actually famously known as one of the uh, one of the top Olympic coaches in sailing or something. He was an Olympic coach. I don't know if he's the top. But he's great. And so this is a sailing quote, but it's it is let the storms show your mastery, and it's this idea that the the bad things, uh, you know, you don't control them. You control your ship. You control your team. You control what you do. And so if, if things are happening around you, your job is to figure it out and, and figure out how you make it work. And when good things are happening around you, your job is to figure out why and also what you can do better. And that, I mean, why have sales leaders? Uh, why have salespeople if you're not doing that? Like if it was an easy job and things always went well, you know, what would be the point? I don't think I've ever had a company hire me with, to do an easy job. They've never done, they've never done that. Totally. <laughs> if it's out there, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, Give me a call. Just kidding. I love PI. But, uh, you know, like sales isn't an easy job. You're going to have a tough month. You're going to miss and you need to be ready for it. And you're going to have a great month. And don't let that, don't let that get you too, uh, feeling good. 
That's great. Last two questions. Do you love winning or hate losing more? Uh, uh, I don't like uh, either. I, I mean, excuse me. I don't like losing at all. And, and I love winning. <laughs> uh, so I'm a captain. Captains are hyper competitive. We do a thing at, at the Predictive Index called the Office Olympics. And the captains on the team all, you know, when it was a physical event, you know, we had people breaking their hands on, uh, on uh, a tug of war. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so captains get hyper competitive. I'm, I'm not immune to that. Uh, I equally love winning and hate losing. I, I can't pick. I refuse to pick. Totally fair. And you're not going to win that. I, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I fall into a, a similar boat. I'm going to try and make this the last question. What's your favorite interview question to ask somebody? I know we've talked about hiring a bit. So what's that favorite interview question for you? Oh, man. You know, one of the things I love about the predictive index is that we really espouse this idea of behavioral interviewing and tailoring that interview to the person. So there's a ton of great interview questions, but it's really a situational question. In other words, if you if you suspect someone's going to be a weak in an area, you should ask them about a time when they've accomplished a task that shows strength in that area. So as an example, if you sense someone's not competitive, then you might want to ask them a question like, hey, tell me about a time when you had to compete with like a friend or a colleague that you really liked. Uh, what were you competing for? How did it go? Did you win or lose? What did you do about it? And you're looking for that emotional response. You're looking for the detail of really understanding why they won or lost. A really nice question. But my absolute favorite question for salespeople do you have any questions for me? You would be shockingly surprised by how many aspiring young salespeople say, no, I'm good. I already asked you know, Mary all the questions or Bob all the questions uh, or someone else all the questions. And you know, I'll, for the aspiring salespeople out, out there, never do that. Even if I haven't given you the opportunity to ask questions, ask some questions. When you're at that most senior level, the way to fail is to not seem like you're a curious person because that's part of the sales profession is you have to be curious and also seem like you're not really that excited or interested in, in that, that senior leader or that person that you're at. And if this may not be a sales thing. Curiosity sells you because people like to talk about themselves. And if you're asking about the company you're trying to work for or the person you're trying to work for, you're giving them an opportunity to share with you something about themselves that is going to give them a lot of pleasure and, and, and allow them to feel good about you and demonstrate that you're a potential superstar salesperson. Oh, that is so many good nuggets come out of that one little question. So thank you so much, Jim. I really appreciate it. There is a ton that our listeners are going to be able to use for themselves, for their teams. I cannot wait to get this out there and share it with the world. So Jim Sparadolozzi of the Predictive Index, thank you so much. And until next time, let's go crush it. Awesome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. It's thanks to help from listeners like you, this podcast can continue to grow and help others. If you found anything helpful in today's episode, please take a second, share with a friend, and leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast today. Thanks. Thanks.